Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. Before we begin today's episode, we wanted to let you know about a live episode taping at Fodden here in Baltimore on Monday, March 2nd. Our guest will be Brendan Canty, the drummer of legendary DC band Fugazi, and currently of the Mesthetics. The event will start at 8 p.m. and also feature music from Baltimore band Micro Kingdom. We also wanted to let you know about a festival that we're co-sponsoring in DC in June called Seventh Stainine. Seventh Stainine will take place on Friday, June 19th, and all day Saturday, June 20th at Rhizome in DC, and the lineup will be announced very soon. More information can be found at seventhstainine.com. The fact that it wasn't loved by everybody, embraced by anybody, just made it all the more appealing to me. And I really think it was pivotal in my sense of um, that it was okay to like music that other people didn't see the value of, that I knew it was brilliant. I just knew this was most awesome song I'd ever heard. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Conley is a founding member of one of the most important bands of the American post-punk movement, Mission of Burma. Founded in Boston in 1979 with drummer Peter Prescott, guitarist Roger Miller, and soundman and tape manipulator Martin Swope, Burma were a guidepost for many bands that followed, creating their own sonic world built of fragments of music that had come before it, but making a loud, unrelenting, and deeply passionate sound that was all their own. After disbanding in 1983, the band reformed in 2002 and has released four additional albums since. The first song Conley chose as being formative for him was Talk Talk by 60s band Music Machine. I got me a complication And it's an only child Consider my reputation Something more than one I know it served me right 
first song, Talk Talk by Music Machine, and uh, maybe I should have done some research. Uh, My guess is it came out in 1965, but it might have been 66. Um, You know, I was a top 40 listener. I was a kid uh, in 65, 66. I would have been 10 or 11 years old, you know, totally besotted by the revolution in rock and top 40 at the time, you know, Beatles, Kink, Stones, Beach Boys, Mamas and Papas, Birds. I mean, it was just, it was just an embarrassment of riches. And, uh, but you know, for the most part, pretty poppy. And uh, it came out of nowhere. And it was, it was sort of terrifying, sort of fascinating. It was hard as hell. It was heavy. It was menacing. Uh, and when I saw the pictures of the guys all dressed in black and wearing black gloves, I just, I was just, I was transfixed. I, I loved that song so deeply. And the fact that it didn't make it into the, you know, top, it may have made it into the top 10, not in, not in New York where I was. It was, you know, sort of there. You kind of heard it on the radio, but you didn't hear it the way you heard, uh, you know, the big hits. Uh, the fact that it wasn't loved by everybody, embraced by anybody, just made it all the more appealing to me. And I really think it was pivotal in my sense of um, that it was okay to like music that other people didn't see the value of, that I knew it was brilliant. I just knew this was the most awesome song I'd ever heard. And uh, I liked it so much, I bought multiple copies of the 45 uh, over the next few years. When I'd see it, I just, I I couldn't stop myself. I had to buy it. Um, And so to me, it was a very uh, important, uh, a significant song in in my development as a music lover. Uh, Because to that point, I, you know, I would, I just love the Beatles. I, I love the Stones. I love the Kinks. I mean, to me, it was just a craving for this music. And um, it was pre-psychedelia. And there were aspects of Music Machine that pointed towards the psychedelic revolution to come. They were right on the cusp. And uh, yeah, just, uh, and to me, the song has, still has immense power when I hear it. it. Just immense power. Were you already playing music at that point or were you, that was that still in the future? I don't, I don't think I was playing music um, quite yet. I think my first guitar was probably a year away, but it was real close and maybe, you know, inspirational because yeah, um, everybody was picking up guitars at that point. Um, 
you know, I don't, I'm not enough of a, of a scholar of, of garage rock. I mean, I know a lot of that stuff. I'm not deeply versed. Uh, but you bring up a, you bring up a really interesting song and sort of an interesting time because right, there was this, this revolution going on on the radio and, you know, and, and, you know, people would see the Beatles and the Rolling Stones on TV and, and things like that. But they were, I mean, the music machine was like a different animal sort of. And, and it's sort of surprising to me that they got around as much as they did, because that's not, that's not really the same sort of thing. It's, it, as you say, it's, it's got a different energy. Um, it's got a different kind of power to it, but it seems to be something that people heard at the time and, um, and, you know, have continued to hear and compilations and reissues and things like that. And I would, you know, I'm not, I'm sure you don't know, uh, but I would love to know sort of what was the thing that led to that being like a minor hit, you know, it just seems so unlikely that that Mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's looking back. That's truly, uh, uh, that's, that's true because, uh, yeah, it, it looks, it's, it's, uh, it's so obvious now looking back at it, uh, it's value, you know, given what followed, um, particularly, you know, 10, 10 or so years later when punk started. Uh, but at the time it was just strange and dark and, you know, it was, it scared our, you know, scared parents and, uh, Gave it increased value, of course. Uh, turn that stuff off. What is that? Uh, just so heavy. Just God, I loved it. <laughs> um, you know, and you're you're hitting on something else that's that's come up a couple of times. Is that sort of um, that sense of this is maybe not the right phrase for it, but private music, right? It's like something you find that feels like you know, like not only you know about it but you know about it and other people don't, or you, you get it and other people don't. And that seems to be several of our guests have sort of talked about that, that moment or that time when it's sort of like you realize that there's something else that everybody else is not onto. And that starts to make a difference. Did, did that it sort of sounds like you're describing that feeling a little bit. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I would say that was the fork in the road there. One of them. And, uh, um, uh, yeah, all all us, you know, music snobs, you know, cherish our <laughs> our difference from the, the 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 great hordes, you know, that follow all the all the commercial stuff. But uh, yeah, that would have been the very beginning of it for me, probably. Did your parents yell at you to turn it down? Of course, of course. Did of course were they interested in music at all, or was this all alien yeah. to them? Oh no! I came from. Uh, my father was a uh, a very serious listener of jazz, and so when I say they told me to turn it down, I'm I'm really kidding because they were extremely tolerant of all my musical uh, uh, my musical mania. Really, um, my father was quite quite an aficionado and followed a lot of jazz people of the uh, Errol Garner. Teddy Wilson kind of era. And um, so, no, they indulged. No, they, they uh, I was very, very lucky in that sense. So they indulged their son uh, in ways that I can hardly believe now. Um, you know, I was, you know, I guess for um, 
a young teenager, I was pretty precocious in my my the intensity of my love for music, and um, so I had them, you know, driving me. Uh, they drove me in to see Hendrix in New York when I was thirteen, and waited patiently while I saw Hendrix in the Experience, and then my mother took me to see Cream up in New Haven in '68, I guess '60. So they, you know, they were, uh, and this 50th anniversary of Woodstock brought up, I didn't go to Woodstock, but uh, a couple of weeks before it, I went to the Atlantic City Pop Festival, which was, you know, Janis Joplin and Creedence Clearwater and Procol Harum and Sly and the Family Stone. It was, you know, just an amazing three-day, 100,000 people festival. And I was, you know, all of 14 years old. So they were pretty tolerant. I'd say, uh, looking back, they were pretty, pretty supportive. Do you still have all those copies of Talk Talk? I do, and it's sort of interesting. I um, I gave away all my records uh, a couple of months ago. I gave away all my records, kind of in a spontaneous. Um, I, I'd thought about it over the past year. I just have you know all these records that are so precious to me, and I, you know, I, I you know with intimations of mortality and all, I'm thinking, my poor daughters, they're not going to know what to do with these things. They know that I love them, but I will leave that leave it on them. And I don't want my wife. Uh, So I, uh, I had Peter Prescott, the drummer from mission of Burma. He was over for dinner with his uh, significant other. I said, Peter, would you take all my records? And he thought I was joking. Of course I said, no, I'm serious. I want, I want you to take my records. So he took my, so all my records are gone, but I kept my 45s. Um, I kind of did that on purpose. Uh, I don't have that many, but um, there's something very significant about 45s. I look at my list of significant songs and many of, you know, at least half of them are uh, 45s. Um, So I wrote, I, I actually wrote a column in the Boston Globe about, for the Boston Globe about giving away all my records. And uh, that was published a couple months ago. How many, uh, I guess, so you're talking about LPs. How many did you have? Yeah. Um, I don't even know because I was never a collector, like an obsessive, um, uh, you know, I was not of the collector's mentality, but you know, it's all pretty esoteric stuff that I have. And it's, um, it was all, none of it's in, collector shape you know these were records that were rode hard and put up wet you know they're all scratched and you know cigarette burns on the on the record covers and stuff these were like well well listened to records uh but you know they're so odd and obscure that uh you know uh, they wouldn't mean anything to most people and you don't have any regrets um, no, it's still a very uh, emotional thing for me. I, 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 I feel like I did the right thing, but it, you know, it's a big, uh, it was a big thing. It was, it was the first thing that would pop into my mind for like weeks afterwards when I'd wake up, I'd open my eyes in the morning. And go, did I really do that? But I hadn't played them. Here's the thing. I hadn't played them in uh, a couple of decades. Uh, you know, I haven't had a turntable set up in forever. 
I know my indie cred is going down the drain as I speak here. Uh, I just never got around to re-putting up, putting up my, I was just a slave to convenience and listening on to Spotify on the, on the highway when I go to work. And um, so I hadn't listened to them. They were there, you know, Kinks, Roxy Music, Miles Davis, uh, Coltrane, uh, you know, just a oddity, you know, Silver Apples, I, just all the way back. Velvet Underground. Oh, I, I'm starting. The tears are starting to well up in the eye. But, um, you know, it was the right thing to do. I feel so happy that they went to Peter. And I don't know, he probably put them up on eBay or took them down to his, because that's what he does. He trades. And, uh, you know, they'll find their way to somebody who will love them. Uh, that makes me happy. But you still have how many copies of Talk Talk? Yes, I have three copies of Talk Talk out there in the garage. In some shoebox or something. It sounds to me like a man with his priorities straight. So Yeah, yeah, I'm hanging on. There, there's still uh, there's stuff out there. <laughs> for sure. Talk talk, talk talk, talk talk, talk talk. The second song Conley chose is essential to his formation as an artist was Little Johnny Jewel by highly influential New York City band television. Johnny Jewel by television, another 45, was profoundly important in, uh, in my musical education. I'm pretty sure that came out around 1975. And it was a time when the idea of putting out your own 45 was still sort of revolutionary. Uh, very few people were doing that. Um, it, and it was the sort of thing where, you know, record stores, there weren't record stores that would keep that, uh, you know, have that sort of thing. You had to mail order it to a post office box in uh, New York City to get it. And uh, I happened to live around New York at the time, so I knew that uh, I could find it at Bleak or Bob's. And I can't remember how I heard about it. I do remember seeing my first poster of television in New York, 74. And um, because I was, I was, 
you know, I was still pretty young. I guess I was around 19. And um, I was hanging around in New York and I was starting, I was hanging around in the glitter scene, you know, seeing the dolls and Wayne County and hanging out Club 82 and stuff. Uh, and, um, and it was a pretty exciting time down there because, uh, you know, things were breaking down, you know, the, all the, the godlike image of the rock star as somebody who lived in a castle and rode white stallions shirtless while their hair blew in the wind across the heath. You know, that whole idea of that kind of rock star, the Robert Plant kind of rock star, uh, was being challenged by this really gritty, up scene in New York down on the Lower East Side. And it was really, really very exciting. Although looking back, the music eh, wasn't that good. But because um, it was just revved up Chuck Berry for the most part. Uh, but then I remember walking around Manhattan and seeing this poster on a, on a light pole. And my God, these guys look like they were from Mars. They, they looked like they came from a different planet. And it was a picture of television with um, uh, Richard Hell. And, uh, you know, ripped T-shirts and spiky hair, short hair. And uh, even, you know, the glitter scene was still very much happening. The predominant sub-countercultural ethos was still very hippie in the mid-70s. Very hippie. Look at any of the yearbooks or, you know, everybody had long hair, long bushy hair. Um, and there was elements of that. And, you know, glitter, glitter rock didn't quite know what it wanted to be, but it was it had some revolutionary strains in it. Uh, but this band, this picture of this band, I, I could just tell they, they had something completely different. So I went down and saw them a few times. And then the single came out in 75. Um, and it really, I think it's the perfect metaphor. I went back and listened to it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you feel like a whole world is being born. And, and uh, the, the opening notes are just so elemental. You know, it's, you know, the bass uh, line. And, but the guitar, he's, it's like he's picking up a guitar for the first time. He's kind of, it's like a, a monkey picking up a guitar. You hear the scratchy sound. It's trying to figure out how to make the notes. These little notes come blipping out and finally it kind of gets a groove. It just sounds like primitive man learning how to use a tool. It's like the, the opening scene in 2001 or, you know, the apes with the, with the tool building a whole new world. I mean, it's just astounding looking back what that single means because they were building a whole new world. And I mean, from scratch, they'd burnt it down. The ele- It was down to the most primitive elements. And um, uh, what they were bringing was just ferocious imaginations with sort of semi-limited technical skills. And uh, the combination was just so exciting. Uh, and... Uh, Yeah, so I was a denizen of the early CBGB uh, stuff, and um, and and television for me was uh, was uh, just the ultimate. They um, uh, I was so electrified. Uh, I remember seeing them one time in those early years, 
being with a college roommate who I listened to a lot of music with, mostly, you know, British import kind of stuff, uh, you know, kind of obscure. He was a very serious music listener. And we were driving up uh, uptown afterwards because he lived up there. And um, uh, I just, I just, I could not believe what we had just seen. I could not believe it. And I turned to him and I could tell he just didn't have the same response. He, yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah, it was, you know. Uh, yeah, I liked a couple of those songs. He was so casual about it when what I'd just seen was absolutely earth-shaking. And I felt like taking him by the neck. Do you know what you just heard? Um, but uh, I just, uh, you know, I would just get so excited by things. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, hanging, hang, seeing those early New York's scenes i was in college at the time uh and just yeah i was in college and um i knew that that's what i wanted to you know i, I was going to get through college and then i was going to try try to be in a band somewhere somehow some way yeah were you playing music already and just hadn't joined a band or were you how yeah i was playing music i would but um <laughs> the music i was playing i was in funk bands when i was in college like show bands with uh, horns and lead singers. And we were doing Earth, Wind and & Fire and Shaka Khan. And it was just an absolute riot. I enjoyed that immensely. But, you know, my private listening was a whole different matter. My private listening was all this obscure underground stuff that they all made fun of. Were there outfits involved? There were. There were outfits, my friend. Oh, yeah, there were outfits. Not we were never all dressed up the same, but man, we dressed up big, hot, and that was that was where glitter rock came in uh, handy because uh, on the funk bands they were all about my big metallic silver platform boots, which I dug out, and uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. You know, one of the things about uh, Johnny Jewel that always struck me as sort of odd. I mean, a lot of things about it are odd is that it's one of, and I, you know, this doesn't really happen anymore, I guess, and hasn't maybe for a long time. Like part of the single was on one side and the other part was on mm -hmm. the other side, right? You had to like flip it over to listen to the whole thing. Yeah, it's very, uh, that, that. Complete your thought. Yeah, I'm sorry. It just, yeah, no, it just, it, it seems like such a, a weird, I mean, talk about sort of a primitive. Totally. Um, way to get your thing across. And but. to me, it sounds so strange when I hear it. Can, I queued it up on uh, YouTube to listen to it a couple when I was trying to think of songs that were important to me. And it went straight through and it seems so disorienting to me, not hearing it fade out and then fade back up on the other side. Another funny thing about uh, television, especially at that moment that you're talking about, like really early on, is that, you know, they were very different than, you know, most everything else that was around at the time. Um, and there was sort of a, a primitive aspect in what you're, what they were doing. I mean, it seems like, I mean, Tom Verlaine is a great guitar player, but it seems like there's always been a little bit in his style of like using things that sort of sound like an accident, like, you know, mm -hmm. finger squeaks and, um, you know, just all sorts of little bits that sort of sound like he doesn't quite know what he's doing, but clearly he does. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but he, that's the thing is that, you know, the, this, this seminal punk band were kind of all about guitar solos, which seems like 
antithetical to the idea of punk rock. And yet they were, you know, one of the first bands of that movement. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, they're long, long extended, uh, you know, highly high, you know, high blown romance guitar solos, you know, are like, uh, definitely an anomaly, you know, in the, in the punk scene. Um, yeah, they weren't doctrinaire, that's for sure. But, um, uh, that, you know, that, that was one of the really great things about the New York scene at the time. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was so, um, varied. Um, you know, there was room for all sorts of fresh thinking, uh, that defied any sort of easy, you know, definition or description. What, what was, what was the, the hinge point? What was the turning point that uh, got you out of the funk bands and into what you would eventually do? Um, Well, I got out of, I I graduated from college and uh, uh, a dear friend of mine in Southern Jersey, it was a friend of a friend. He said he, he knew somebody in Boston who was starting a band and the guy really liked Iggy and MC5, but he was also just getting his master's in music composition. Uh, so he was sort of a serious thinker about music, but he loved the you know brutal energy of, uh, of uh, underground rock. And so I met up with that guy. His name's Eric Lindgren. <clears throat> and uh, we hit it off and he seemed like a very creative fellow and uh, so I just, I packed my car. I put my app in the car and drove to Boston. Um, and uh, as I was in a band with him for about a year. Uh, and during that time, Roger Miller joined the band through various circumstances. And uh, when I, when, once I met Roger, it was all over. I was just, he and I just knew we were, uh, on the same wavelength and casting, you know, kind of moon eyes at each other across the band rehearsals and like, let's get out of here. Let's start our own thing. And uh, yeah, so that's how Burma started. (laughs) It was, it was love at first feedback. (laughs) Very nice. Um, Eric Lindgren is, is that, is he bird songs? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So and Eric's you... been around, and uh, he's a uh, he's a very interesting guy, very talented guy, you know. But you know, I just really wanted guitar. Right. Right. I wanted guitar rock. Yeah. I wanted. That... Yeah. It was just never going to be primitive enough for me with right. a keyboardist writing music. There was right. something interesting on Facebook recently. Somebody said, "List your favorite keyboard solos in rock, or maybe it was piano solos." I honestly could not think of a single piano solo that's ever. I mean, when it comes to jazz, that's completely different. Um, In rock, I mean, you know, Nicky Hopkins, maybe with Jeff Beck or I don't know. I can't even think of one. It's just not, it's not the instrument. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize Um, all you keyboard players. I'm coming up a little dry myself. I can't really. How, who's ever been moved? Um, likewise, there's very few uh, saxophone solos in rock that I am really behind. I, I, I could probably be corrected on this. 
Um, you know, there's some Iggy stuff, and that's kind of wild and freeform and kind of cool. Uh, but in jazz, in jazz, I'm just in love with the tenor sax. I'm in love with uh, the baritone. I'm in love with Eric Dolphy. Absolutely in love. But uh, when I hear a sax in, in rock, eh, it just sounds so corny. So, somewhere um, on social media, um, I think this must have been Twitter, um, someone, the, the post was basically, um, you know, there are no good uses for saxophone solos in rock songs. Prove me wrong. And That's like the true. Next, the next tweet was, Baker Street does not count. <laughs> because I think that's where everyone stampeded. Yeah, uh, right. But and you know I, I I don't remember if anyone eventually won him over. But uh, oh my I gosh, a, I think it was a hard sell. Yeah, the world would be a better place without Baker Street. But if you see him looking lost, you ain't gotta come on so boss. I hope you know that he's paid. Know that he's paid the price. All you gotta do for that guy. The final song Conley chose as being crucial to him was Candy Corn by Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Beefheart, Candy Corn, uh, which was on one of the earlier albums, Mirror Man. Um, I took, uh, you know, I, I thought, uh, um, uh, I came up with this song when I thought the prompt was, what songs have influenced your songwriting? Which is a very difficult question. I mean, an almost impossible question to ask a songwriter. I would I would venture to say any songwriter who can identify his influences is probably stealing material um, because uh, songwriting is just so such a, you know, weird, mysterious process of uh, accumulated knowledge and, and uh, enthusiasms. Um, who knows what goes into the, the mix, but, um, I did think of Beefheart because he always came in, he came to mind a lot. I, um, 
let's see. I, I probably didn't, I didn't hear candy corn when it came out. I think it was probably 67 or 68. Uh, I probably heard it a couple of years after that. But when it came time, see, I was, uh, uh, when it came time for me to write songs, uh, and that was after the Eric Lindgren band, it's when Mission of Burma started as was when I started writing songs. Uh, uh, as a, and, and in contrast to Roger Miller, who, who had a life, he was just always writing songs since he was a kid. Um, but it was new for me when I got into Burma. And um, uh, <clears throat> I just, uh, there was something about candy corn in that middle section where it goes into this floating single chord. Well, actually the chords do change, but uh, it's a very amorphous uh, uh, floating... I'm, I'm reaching for words here. Help me, help me. Um, uh, almost cloud-like uh, structure in the middle of the song. And um, so when I came, when I started writing songs, I didn't know, really know how to write songs. I'd, you know, I'd get something that I liked. And um, uh, and typical song structure is, you know, you have a verse, melody, verse, melody, and then a bridge, and then a verse, melody, or something like I mean, a verse, chorus again on the way out. Uh, and I was nothing if not the Tin Pan Alley songwriter in Mission of Burma. Roger's stuff was far more uh, avant and more sophisticated. Uh, I was more the verse chorus kind of guy, meat and potatoes. Uh, and when I'd come to the chorus, uh, the middle part, sort of the, uh, I think the Beatles called it the middle eight, <clears throat> you know, the song shifts. And I used to always, I don't know why, but, but, Captain Beefheart would seize control of my brain when I was writing those choruses. And I always felt, because my songs were usually very forward-leaning, very propulsive, kind of charging at you, charging at you. And I, I, I guess somewhere I thought, well, let's, let's, let's just give the poor listener some relief here for a few bars before we renew the charge. And so the middle parts of my songs typically are very um, kind of a little melodic, a little dreamy. Um, and very uh, candy cornish. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, like the middle of um, like uh, Micah is very candy cornish. There's a part in there. I can't, I can't even think how it goes. Um, very, very candy cornish. Um, anyhow, so Beefheart, I mean, I, uh, I just, I, I, I can't, I can't praise him, uh, enough when I decided to, he was more Beefheart. I was, you know, I was listening to all this, uh, you know, sort of quote unquote advanced music when I was, you know, pretty young uh junior high school high school and um and I knew Beefheart was highly regarded and supposed to be really strange so I I picked up um Trout Mask Replica and it was it was uh talk about being from another planet this was a this is completely uh almost inhuman musical language and uh very insect like and peculiar um and it made no sense to me, but I remember um, 
it, uh, listening to it over and over again in a very disciplined way that I can't think of doing with any other records because I knew, I sensed that it made sense. I just couldn't, I couldn't put it in, uh, I couldn't make or- sense order of it in my brain yet. And uh, slowly, you know, I get to the obvious uh, little sing-song melodies that he throws in. Uh, but, you know, I eventually got it and I eventually just became, and it was it, uh, what had been a largely intellectual exercise on my part became just very, um, very uh, uh, encompassing. I just very, uh, just, uh, I just totally, I just totally went over and I, I got it, you know? So um, I became a big, uh, a big proponent of beef heart. And that was a hard sell in Darien high school in Connecticut. Let me tell you, but um, yeah, that's my beef heart story. And I saw him a couple of times. That was pretty awesome. I was just going to ask because I guess he stopped playing live sometime in the early 80s. Yeah, I probably saw him in the 70s. I saw him around the time of, um, it was a little bit later. Um, he was supposed to play at um, the Atlantic City Pop Festival that I was that I went mentioned earlier in 69. Um but I saw him later in the seventies and uh, it was just amazing. Just amazing. He was doing a little bit more coherent stuff at that time. Spotlight kid. And Clear dot. Yeah. Did the, was the band able to sort of flip back and forth between those relatively more, I don't know what the word would be together uh, conventional records. And they were playing. They were playing their from, their latest uh, record, but it was the same. It was mo- it was a, a lot. It was uh, largely the same band. Um. So, yeah, I saw him open for Jay Giles in New York one time. It was so bizarre. Such a bizarre gig. Where I'm from in the South, uh, you know, we didn't get a lot of great rock shows uh, there for a long time, but. There's a story about uh, a show that everyone went to where it was U2 on their first U.S. tour <laughs> opening for Jay Giles. So maybe there's like a, you know, a legacy yeah, right. there that we, we, don't, well, we don't respect Jay You know, Giles in Peter Wolf's defense, he is humanity. a mega music listener. He's, uh, you know, he is very passionate music. So for all I know, he, he wanted Beefheart on the on the on the bill um and speaking of you two burma opened for you two on their first tour in albany new york and that that was uh that was a, a interesting night that was fun that's all you're gonna say that was fun. <laughs> they were sweethearts they were nice guys and they were thrilled to be in america they were thrilled to be in albany new york if you can believe that and playing this little dingy club um yeah, no, I I think that's uh, um, I thought they were okay. You know, I thought they might have a future, but shows what I know. So you know, you've had uh, you know, I guess a long career. You know, it's gone I guess in stages. You know, there was the initial run of Burma, and then you know came back and uh, played more shows and made more records. Um, do you still write songs? Is that still something that you feel really compelled about? No, it's um 
I'm I'm really kind of an odd duck when it comes to writing music um, because right now I don't <clears throat> I don't I don't I don't write music I don't play guitar in my spare time um, I listen to music quite a bit still um, but um, in terms of actively songwriting it's kind of I don't, I've described it before. It's sort of like one of those um, 17-year pestilence, kind of like cicadas come around 17, every 17 years or so. I'll, I'll have this, you know, intense two or three years of writing, 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 of waking up pre-dawn. And, you know, it happened to me in early 80s. And then it happened again in the late 90s, early 2000s where after a bunch of years of not playing, I just was suddenly writing music like I'd never written before. So, you know, the, um, so that preceded the Burma um, relapse and uh, with another band that I have had called Consonant, uh, where I was just writing tons of music. And then it slowly ebbed uh, and uh, normal life, re you know, regained hold. So... I don't, I don't, I, it's, it's not the typical, um, not the typical uh, pattern for people that write music, I don't think. Either that or I'm just not disciplined and I kind of let it go after a while or something like that. Um, so does that mean you're done? Do you think there's more? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe when I'm like 85 or something, I don't know. Maybe it'll come on again. Uh, I honestly, uh, I don't know. <clears throat> I um, I'm, I'm grateful when it's happening, and uh, but it is kind of manic. Um, and it was a little bit of um, uh, a little unnerving to my wife, who, you know, met me after the Burma years, Burma one, you know, one point, whatever, however you say it, one point oh or whatever. Um, yeah, to, to be, I, you know, it's like, it's like I was seized by some, some, some demon muse or something. But, um, uh, yeah, no, I'm happy when life returns to normal, too. I don't know. It's all, it's all good. I feel really, you know, it's amazing what I've been able, you know, been able to experience, so. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.